this morning, we have been blessed because we're in this teaching of the book of Psalms. But I thought very carefully about what I wanted to do this morning, and I wanted to transition away from Psalm 11, which is what I'm going to do next Lord's Day, just for a moment, to do something that I feel we don't do enough of. And let me explain why I'm going to do um, a question and answer today. It's not because I didn't study. Um, (laughs) This decision was made before that. I have such brief opportunities to come and to speak. Uh, When I do have a privilege to speak, it means so much to me because, again, you know, God's Word is everything. The ability to preach the Word of God is uh, what I went to seminary for, what we come here to hear. But there is sometimes something I think that's lacking in our fellowship group, and that is uh, fellowship and the ability to get to know one another. It's an interesting thing. Many years ago, we asked Pastor John, um, what is the goal and purpose of fellowship groups? And without even skipping a beat, he said, I would imagine it's fellowship. (laughs) (laughs) So we're going, right, that's the word, fellowship group. Great, got it. Um, And yet, so often we have that time a little bit before, a little bit afterwards. And so I want to take this time to get to know what's on your heart, what's your concerns. I want to get to know joint errors a little bit better. Um, So that's the reason I took a bite of a sandwich before I preached, because I'm not going to preach. I'm going to share, and I want to collectively not only just answer questions that you are having on your heart, but I'd like to know what's on your heart, even if it's not a question, things that are going on within the church, things that are going on within our fellowship group, uh, things that are going on in my life. And again, I'm not doing this as a way to escape preaching. If you knew me, that's the one focus I have. I am jealous to preach all the time. But I I feel a conviction that, especially in my situation of life, I come in at the very end because I do announcements and then I preach and then everybody's gone and I'm here by myself answering the one or two questions that are here. And and so I want to know what's going on with you. And I want to sense what is the heartbeat of joint heirs. So if this makes you feel kind of uncomfortable because I'm just not going to talk to you the whole time without you speaking, you know, that's okay. Uh, it's something you have to get used to every once in a while. I used to do Q&As every single Lord's Day, or excuse me, every single Friday evening when I was a singles pastor. So I would fellowship or I would preach for an hour, and then afterwards we'd get coffee, you know, which is usually about 11 o'clock at night. And then we would, you know, be high uh, caffeinated, and we would go on until like 12 or until the, the janitors ask us to leave. And it was always Q&As, and it was so much fun. I'll give you one real quick as you're thinking what you might ask me. There was a man, I think I've told you this before, and he stood up in front of everyone. His girlfriend was right by his side, and he said, uh, Pastor, what do you do if you suspect the one that you're dating isn't a Christian? And I'm, and I'm thinking to myself, there's just no way he's asking uh, for himself. And so I answered, you know, whatever I thought would be appropriate. It was like 25 years ago. I don't remember what I said. Then afterwards, I noticed that they were in a, uh, an argument. And, and I asked him, I said, that wasn't a question about her, was it? He goes, yeah. And I said, well, that, that wasn't the wisest thing to do. <laughs> I mean, you can have the question, you know, I'm, I'm available privately to talk, but, you know, in front of, you know, 100 people was not great wisdom. So think about what you want to ask. Uh, <laughs> you know, just in case, you know, your wife's right there and you're wondering about, you know, issues with your wife. By the way, everybody let me know that the tea is not tomorrow. I get it. I made one mistake. I'm trying to put our ladies at the forefront of the whole church's mind, and I get a barrage of text messages. It's not happening. It's not happening. What have you done? And so, <laughs> so I will never, no, I'm going to do it again, but I'll just do it next week. Uh, but anyway, but thank you for being so attentive. I'm glad you're listening. Um, 
So questions, you know, this can go from anything from uh, theology, which it's interesting when I talk about John MacArthur, people always say, you know, I want to know John's position on this or John's position on that. And I'm thinking, you know, there's the Internet. You can, there's no, there's no absence of his doctrine or what we believe here at Grace Church. I was always interested more about, like, what he had for breakfast, you know, how does he organize his day, you know, stuff that I don't find anywhere on the Internet. Now, I'm not saying you're interested in that for me, but I'm just saying that that is something that also this, these times can produce. So um, I am I'm open, I'm willing, I'm caffeinated. So, uh, <laughs> no, I had coffee early this morning. I got up at 2, um, but that's why I changed my mind about, you know, perhaps... Actually, I got up at 2 to do announcements. You, he was so... Wasn't that great that Harry mentioned me? No one ever talks about what I do, <laughs> ever, ever. And I was like, I didn't pay him money. I didn't do anything for him. And I'm thinking like, wow, Harry, that was really sweet, you know. Um, he probably won't do it second hour, but still. Uh, so any questions for me as we, yes. <laughs> Stand up, give everybody your name, because that's another fear that I have, is without name tags, we just smile a lot at folks. Hey, brother. Hey, sister. <laughs> do you know what I'm saying? And so it gets a little bit awkward after a while. So, hey, hey. Oh, you're funny, Holly. Uh, just let's start with one. <laughs> okay. Um, I'm really quite interested in the significance or the gravity behind the blessings of the Eucharist in our lives. Hmm. Um, for instance, when Eric in um, Genesis 27 has a prayer for his Esau and Jacob and they receive him right away. Yeah. Well, you know, that's actually talked about earlier in Genesis with Jacob, right? If I'm not mistaken, it's like, you know, why not just reverse what you've done? And what I've said, you know, it is what I have said is what's going to happen. And, you know, I was just reading uh, in Genesis lately, and that same or a passage similar to that came up again. And I was just thinking the same question, quite frankly. And in my mind, The first thing that struck me, first of all, there's no explanation in the text why. So all of this is going to be just the analogy of Scripture, looking at all Scripture, trying to compare what we see there with what other passages tell us about God's sovereignty, His providence. And so my uh, time of reflecting on that came to, I think it's best to understand that no matter what man does, God's will is going to triumph through even mistakes errors, uh, deceit, mischief, that, that God's purposes are undeniable and, un, if this is a word, unthwartable. They cannot be thwarted. And so if, if that had not happened, then we wouldn't have, even in ourselves, you're supposed to read that and feel like it's unjust. That's, that's supposed to be the reader's observation. You should see that and go, what? That's not right. The same way when Jesus speaks to the Canaanite woman, uh, and he says, uh, "I only came for the the sons of I- the lost sheep of Israel, not for the dogs," and we're going, "What? Why would he say that?" So there are times where we're supposed to question what happened, because that question then leads us to further clarity on, "Well, he's this is a test," or in this case, God's purposes, no matter how much we think that the king is out of control. We find out back in Proverbs that God is actually controlling the king's heart to make it go whatever way he wants. So in my mind, as unjust as that is, and it's equally clear that that would be possible to sit there and go, well, just reverse the blessing. You made a mistake. But no, it's like what I've done, I have done. It's kind of like Pharaoh, you know. So it is written, so it would be done. And God works through that. So for me, I always think of, and again, this is not in the text, I think of there is no plan B. There never has been a plan B. People speak of that in our generation. I think that gives comfort to some people. Well, if it doesn't work out here, you can always go to plan B. There's no plan B in God's economy. And yet, when we read the Word of God, we feel like, couldn't it have gone this way? Or couldn't it have gone that way? Or, or why is there this seeming injustice? Or why is there... 
know, the pillage of, of, of women and, and the murder of children and all of these things? Why did Herod get to kill the children two years and under? And, and why did God allow Pharaoh's firstborn all to be slain? Why? And I think it drives us back to that those harder questions make us look back to this one fact, that God's purposes will not be thwarted. What he says is going to come to pass, no matter what kind of treachery or, or illegitimacy or confusion or in, injustice, we think that God is saying, no, this was always a part of my plan. This was never going to be different and gives us opportunity to accept and to believe and to trust. So in my life, when I see um, no one's ever cho- we didn't choose, you know, which son was going to come out first or anything like that. And even if we had a, you know, that would have been weird. But, <laughs> but we, we have the opportunity to see sometimes the firstborn who is supposed to be the one that is sacred to God, given to God. Um, sometimes you'll find out in your family tree that that's not the case. Sometimes it'll be the last one that's born. He becomes the preacher. I'm not saying Jude's going to become a preacher. But I, and I'm not saying Joe is not, he's walking with the Lord tremendously. But just sometimes it works out different than you think. And I think that that's an encouragement. So, Do you have another question? I do. Okay, well, just hang on, and we're going to get one more here, and then I'm going to come back to you because I want to be fair because Holly's got <laughs> dominion over all questions. Yes. What's your name again? I forgot. Phil? Phil. Or Fell. Fidel. I'm thinking, I, was gonna, I wasn't going to say anything, but Fell, man, that's a, that's a tough name. You know, Fidel. Got it. Faithfulness. Fidel. Fidelity. Okay. So my question has always been um, navigation about discipline. Yeah. Specifically about church discipline and what happens when one of our you know, fellow brethren or sister or brother falls. Yeah. Right. So it's more of a process question. Yeah. I always wanted to ask either Michael or Pastor John if you could comment. Especially when Michael is on here. Let, let, let me call him real quick. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> Yeah. Right? And mm-hmm. it's, I always wonder, like, well, what happened? You know, what's the process like? And then let's say they do, you know, the, the defense falls and they go through the process. And I wonder, do they come back to church? Or are they counseled with someone else? Um, yeah. What's that process like? Great question. And very timely question, too. So the process is laid out in Matthew 18. So if you have a, uh, issue with you. If your brother or sister has sinned against you, you go to them. The fact I said sister right there, let me clarify. If a female sins against you, there's a different process where you wouldn't want to go to a woman by yourself to confront her. You would have to have others there. It's implied in the text that it's a, a man, but any you want to be guarding yourself. But if someone sins against you, go to them. If they recognize the sin or they admit to it, you've won your brother. And that's why most church discipline happens uh, at the very first level, all most of the church, there would be a church full of uh, bulletins and announcements from the from the pulpit about all these people who have you know fallen into sin and are un- unrepentant. If it weren't for the blessing of step one, step one, most people repent. Most believers, when confronted with their sin, see if they see it as sin, will repent and turn. So you never see it progress. That's why it's so irregular. Point two would be if they don't, you bring a witness. And again, it's not a witness to the infraction or the sin. It's a witness to the confrontation. It's a a witness that's sitting there confirming that I've gone to you, I've pleaded with you, and you've rejected it. And again, this process is not in steps that make it seem as if it's quick. Sometimes it can take months before something like this happens, and does. If they still refuse, even when there's witnesses there, then you say go before the church. And that's what we call third step church discipline. It's the third step. And that's where you go before the church and you'll hear on, in our tradition on a communion Sunday, Pastor John or whoever is uh, preaching that day will sit there and say, brother so-and-so, sister so-and-so has not repented. And so we ask the congregation to go after them, to seek out their restoration, their repentance. And so if you know them, obviously if you don't know them, that wouldn't be incumbent upon you to do that. But if you know them, you go to them. 
and you sit there and say, what's going on? I didn't know this about you. And, and, and if they resist even that, again, a period of time, fourth step is the removal from the fellowship. And so it's announced that so-and-so is acting in such a way that uh, their salvation is under question. Uh, they are to be treated like a tax gatherer or as a, as a pagan. And that means that there is opportunity for evangelism, but you're not to associate with them for the very purpose of alienating them from the fellowship. They are to feel the, the holy jealousy, the, the sense of isolation from the people of God so that they yearn for that. And God uses that. You know, that's why all the one another's, that's why the church is so important corporately, because when you and, and let me make a side comment real quick. If you don't have relationships in the church, you are insulating yourself from ever going through Matthew 18 because you don't care, because it doesn't matter to you. But if you care, if you're a believer and you're actually in the body of Christ and you're letting people in your life and love matters to you, then the alienation that happens because of church discipline is very real and a sting. I remember years ago, we used to have the... Um, new visitors out on the patio. It was like a courtyard. Uh, we had little carts. And um, one time I'm out there sitting, and there was a man that came out. We were doing a church discipline, and he was very fumed. And he said, do you know what's going on in there? And I had really no idea at the time what he was talking about. And I said, no. He goes, he goes, they're calling out somebody's name for sinning. And I then knew what he was talking about. And I go, oh. And he goes, he goes if that's the case, then call my name out. I'm a sinner too. And I got what, you know, he'd never seen that before. And I said, let me ask you something, sir. Are you repentant of your sin? He goes, yes. I go, they're not. They're not. And this process is driving them, hopefully, toward that repentance. Your question, which was, do you ever see restoration? Yes. And in fact, without giving uh, too much detail right now, there's going to be restoration in this group. There is one of us who has been uh, church disciplined and uh, is no longer with us, but is coming back with us. And it is probably one of the glorious things that's ever happened in our group and in the church, because if they were disciplined in front of everyone, they are also to be restored in front of everyone. And that's going to be a very happy day in this group. And it's, uh, everything is in the works, and we're just going through some of the fine-tuned elements of the um, repentance that will be spoken. Uh, so it does happen. I will tell you it's rare. Uh, I, this will be only the third time since 1992 that I've experienced it. And so that's, you know, sad. Most people, as you, to continue on your question, most people, when they are church disciplined, feel as if they've been unrighteously dealt with. Most people do not want to deal with their sin. Most people feel as if they are um, uh, slighted, the victim, and so what they'll do nine times out of ten is they'll just gravitate toward a different church. And because you don't know, because we don't you know, have a private detective following you around, I mean, some of you we do, but most of you, <laughs> most of you we don't. Let me just double check. Five of you we do. No, I'm kidding. And uh, no, so we don't follow anybody around. So if you go to a different church, we're not going to know about that except God is sovereign and God is providential. And so just the other day, I received a phone call from a lady whom I know who uh, is going to a different church. She used to go here years ago. And she said, I just saw someone that was disciplined out of Grace Church and they're here. What should I do? And I said, well, you need to go to the pastor. You need to tell him not of the sin, but just they were disciplined at Grace Church, and they're here. And then he can contact us, and we can share whatever they need to share to shepherd them or um, to help them. But, you know, so you can kind of hide out and you can dismiss the charge or you can, by God's glorious repentance that he grants, uh, come to the realization of your sin and be restored. And it's, you know, Paul talks about it in 2 Corinthians. He talks about it in 1 Corinthians. It's just, you know, he says even there's a point where you don't want to keep the person at bay any longer. If they want to repent, let them come back. They've, they've suffered enough. But suffering is important. Uh, for people to come to the realization of the truth. Um, it, is, it is very difficult. Uh, it's a very loving thing to do. I've done it more times than I've wanted to do it. And it's always sad and ugly and uh, disappointing. And it's revealing to you also that you can say you're a Christian 
And you can believe you're a Christian, but you can also lie to yourself. And so the, the proof of that is in your behavior and in your reactions. And so that's kind of the Matthew 18 schematic. And it is effective. Uh, just so you know, John MacArthur told us one time as a staff that when he came to Grace Church, which was in 1969, we're celebrating 54 years today, that no church that he knew of did church discipline. Not his father's church, no church did church discipline. And I was surprised because I thought that, you know, just me, that church discipline was the norm and somehow it kind of got off of the scene through just liberalism and now we're restoring what once was. And he said he'd never seen it. And he was back in the, this is the 50s and 60s where you would think Protestant churches were at the apex of, of fundamentalism, but they weren't. It wasn't, that, it wasn't true. So hope that helps. So, yeah. Oh, okay. I can't lie. Um, I mean, I can't. I won't. (laughs) 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 Yeah. Well, thank you for that. That's why I asked my friends from Ranger Joe to come here today. And uh, <laughs> I'm just kidding. I didn't ask them. Uh, and they're, I, I saw the look. They're going, no. <laughs> He's calling us out. No. Uh, don't worry. We're filming everything. Uh, so, you know, it's really interesting. I teach a preaching class on Saturdays, and I was just talking about this yesterday. So, um, the interesting thing is, I, I, and again, my two different careers, I pursued acting. <laughs> I mean, I got some jobs. I wouldn't call it my career. I was, that, was, that was the desire of my heart. Um, but as I was pursuing acting, I learned something called script analysis. And so you, how you break down a script, how you interpret characters, um, and that whole mechanics of doing that already were in my mind when I got saved. And so biblical interpretation, it's what we call uh, exegetical hermeneutics. It's the same. It's like using, it's uh, desiring an insight into the different genres, understanding context. In fact, one time I was, um, I wasn't a pastor yet. I was a believer and I was taking a class at Santa Monica College with a teacher who was a doctor from uh, UCLA, and she was teaching Western civilization. And she was talking about how Adam and E, or excuse me, Cain and Abel were just metaphors for the cattle industry and uh, some other kind of the commercialization of the world or whatever. And um, I was just squirming in my seat because I thought, what? And so, and this was a classroom, probably about 300 people, you know, it's one of those big ones. And so I raised my hand and I said, because I thought it was great. I go, excuse me. I go, I understand what you're saying, but um, I teach acting, and I look at a script uh, historically, grammatically, uh, contextually, and according to the pages of the Bible, it was because of their relationship with God, and one had displeased him. It had nothing to do with the commercialization of animal control or <laughs> agriculture. And she, I remember to this day, there was a guy like three or four rows ahead of me, and he looked back at me, and he was like so mad. I'm going, I'm just saying, you know, I'm just, you know. I used to go to class with um, um, apologetic books under my desk, so when they would talk about stuff, I'm just flipping pages, and I'm going, you know, uh, according to Roddy McDowell, uh, you know, or whatever. Um, so, so on one side, that helped me. Um, the other side is, you know, you practice... And not all acting, okay, this, this is all for free. Uh, it's called um, acting at what you call the method acting level is called, um, it, it's private, but it's public. So it's called uh, private solitude, or, or excuse me, public solitude. So you're in solitude with another actor, but it's publicly viewed. And so we have to train people to get their attention off of the circumstances around them, not to be self-conscious, because you're trying to find the truth of being private in public. So that's part of it. But there's also times where you have to do monologues and you have to, you know, there's all kinds of different things. And so the, the art of communication is very similar to preaching and homiletics. And so 
when I teach guys about how to read the Bible, when I teach guys about how to preach, all different elements, I'm always going back to that model of what are the, what are the qualities of art that God created that apply here? For instance, and this is like way more than you want to know, and you've already tuned out. But anyway, uh, there's something called Aristotle's rhetoric. And Aristotle's rhetoric is just his discovery of the rules of communication and persuasion that he discovered and brought forth as, you know, he, he collected it from the ozone layer. But he, he is presenting these things. And I had a student in my um, preaching class who did a paper on the the style of rhetoric that Aristotle discovered that's evidenced in the Bible, meaning that he was just discovering what God was already doing even in Scripture because all communication is communication. All persuasion is persuasion. Um, anyway, that's a little bit. So I, I, I enjoy it. I've liked it. It's interesting because not all actors that you may know uh, are very public. They don't like to be in public. They don't like to talk to crowds. We had uh, different people over the years from the studio that I work in who have made speeches. So I've listened to uh, Tom Cruise. I've listened to uh, Robert De Niro. I've listened to Anthony Hopkins. I've listened to uh, Susan Sarandon, all these different ongoing, ongoing uh, Tom Hanks, all these different people over the years. And Robert De Niro is just the most shy guy. I mean, he is like, talk about uninteresting. He's like, hey, what's up? Uh, Good job. Thank you, good job. You know, and you're going, we paid money for you to speak. And this was ridiculous, you know. So I'm thinking, you know, he's not a people person. But privately, in public solitude, as he's being filmed, he's wonderful. So um, so sometimes it can help an actor who's a little bit more um, kind of like Toastmasters that's kind of given over to a, a study of how to speak in front of people. That can help. Um, but for the most part, I just think of it as I love art. I'm highly critical of, um, I'm highly, cri- I'm too critical of everything. I'm too critical of anything that has to do with art, anything that has to do with, you know, interpretation. I was, even yesterday in my preaching lab, what was that I said? They, oh, they, we, were looking, we were working on propositional statements, which is something we actually work on. We may not do it well, but we work on it. And I was ta- talking to one of the students. He said, he goes, so what I have here are four uh, things that the text is talking about. And as I stop him, I'm going, what's a, what's a thing? Like a thing? Like like your thing or my thing? You mean like an evidence or like an aspect or like an attribute? And so we're trying to, you know, be, I'm being critical, but it it comes from my love for art. So uh, sometimes that can get a little weird. Sometimes people don't like it that, you know, I know Shakespeare, uh, but I I love it. It makes your life so much more deep and, and meaningful to have. Like all of it's from God in terms of he created the people writing it. Not all of it is godly, but um, I think that's helped me. Um, and also, last thing, and everybody's going like, hopefully, last thing, <laughs> is uh, is <laughs> is it helps you with people. Part of acting has to do with reading people and playing off of people. You know, you're, uh, I'm speaking to, for, and off of James. I'm speaking to him. I'm speaking off of him. I'm speaking for him. And these principles are just ingrained in you, so you become a really good listener. And I find that that's a lot of what I do is listen and, um, and, and try to track what somebody's saying and, and, and care, and that came from acting too. So if you ever want to take a listening course, uh, acting, I'm not going to say act because that would be crazy and people would stone me, but, but it's really helpful if you, if you have the right people teaching you. Yeah, and then. Barbara, good morning. Really? Oh, I hope I'm okay with the answer. <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, it does say son of man here in Mark 2. If I said son I of man. Did I? Yes. Well, that was my bad. Uh, 
you know, sometimes I get ahead of myself, but I mean, it's, it's right there. I've got the biggest print that I can find. And uh, one time, years ago, uh, John MacArthur's secretary called me up and she said, um, hey, Tom, when I think you're reading the scripture, I just really think you shouldn't paraphrase. And I'm going, I, I never paraphrase. And she's saying, well, and so we found out that at that time, John was using the New American Standard 1990, what, 7 or 98, and I was speaking from the 1995, and I was speaking from the 1977. And so just even that, you're the second person that's asked me about Mark 2 this week about what you read, and I was hoping it was going to be because it just blessed your heart, but <laughs> blessed mine, but uh, no, it's son of man because I use the legacy standard version. But I'm so glad that you were attentive enough to seek it out. I'm so glad. Most, most people just go, uh-huh. So, yeah, what do you say? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so I'm so glad you're diligent. Yeah, I know it's son of man. I mean, I'm looking at it right here. If I said son of God, I'm going to have to go listen to it, though, because, you know. Oh, well, that one's not recorded, so who knows? <laughs> yeah, check out the 11 o'clock. <laughs> I made a comeback. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <You>, yes. <laughs> That's just like me. Like, you can't be me. Yes. Oh, and then we'll come back over here, too. James, pick it up, pick it up, pick it up. Yeah. It's like cardio. Holly. Oh, good. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, because it's not in the Bible, and because specifically, and this is a really important question. My dad uh, was in a great Methodist church with people who loved him so much, and when he was dying, that church surrounded him with love and prayer, and um, kids would come in and sing at his bedside. He loved the children, and he was just um, committed to the ministry there. And he was um, 40 years, 45 years a Bible teacher there. He was Phil Johnson's dad's Sunday school teacher way back in Wichita, Kansas. And he had a a dear gal there who um, was a pastor in the Methodist church. And she sang uh, and was just beautiful. And so after my father died, we were at a table at the church, and we had come into town, Lori and I, to, to visit my dad. And I just asked her, I said, so, so why, why are you a pastor? You know, why, why is that your, your desire? And she talked about all the right reasons because she's, she loves the Lord uh, she felt the gifting, the communication, she loves people, all those things that are true and good. Um, it's a long answer to this short question. But so then I just said, well, what do you do when Scripture says that, that women are not to speak or give instruction to men? How do you interpret that? Well, she didn't have an answer. And, and honestly, she went to a Methodist seminary, so maybe they don't cover that. Maybe that's just something that they conveniently pass over. But most people who study the issue will sit there and say, Paul is talking to the Ephesians, in, um, and uh, the, uh, the cult priests were there, priestess were there, and he's trying to say, don't allow a woman to speak because of the historical context. And the historical context would say, he's just trying to keep women who were in the priesthood to keep them from becoming speakers in the in the church. But again, it doesn't explain that in the Bible. It's just uh, whole books have been written about that. But the reverse is it's not a personality thing. It's not a sexist thing. It's not an inferiority thing. It's not because, uh, like Peter says, you know, that they, um, you know, that they're the weaker vessel. None of that's the reason. Because some of the greatest teachers that we have here at Grace Church happen to be women. So it's not, it's not that. It's it's what the Bible says are to be men are to lead the congregation as elders. Now, sometimes people say, well, does that mean a woman can't lead uh, a, a young man at any point in his life? You know, no, we feel like, I mean, again, this is, this is uh, cultural. At 18 
or really about 16, we figure it really should be a man who's teaching him now. So sometimes we have women in Sunday school class here who are great instructors, and they tie their hearts to these young kids when they grow up one day. We see it all the time in our family where they go, I used to teach him in third grade or whatever, and it's a blessing. But after a while, that transference has to be gleaned from, it's not just mother and dad now, it's actually a man of God who's preaching the people of God. And so, you know, we're, we're looked down on for that. You know, we have a seminary full of men. <laughs> we, have, we have deacons. We have deaconesses, too, because that's actually in the Bible where they don't have the word deaconess. I know I loved your look on that one, but it's there. Uh, but they don't have any office of authority. They don't rule. They don't make decisions or anything like that. The, the purpose of a, of a woman at this point is to love her children, to love her husband, to be, in my mind, a, a Proverbs 31 kind of entrepreneurial spirit providing for her home, uh, getting instruction from older women in Titus 2, all of that to teach the truth. Even Apollos was taught by his grandmother, or, or excuse me, Timothy was taught by his grandmother. So women have a profound position in the church, but just not as pastor-teacher. And sometimes you go to churches. uh, Years ago, I was tempted to, I wasn't tempted. Uh, Someone just kept pressing me to go look to see, to become a pastor at a different church. And she really wanted me to go to, I won't say it, but Bel Air Press. And uh, (laughs) so I, I, I met with the guy there and he said, well, first of all, just so you know, um, he goes, I love John MacArthur. He goes, he's great. But when people find out you're from John's church, they're, they're going to reject you here, just so you know. And I go, okay, well, that's a good reason not to come. And, uh, and he said, and also, um, he goes, you know, we have women elders, and we have, you know, baptism of babies. And it just kept getting deeper and deeper and deeper. And the only thing I could think of is, like, what a great view, though. Uh, <laughs> you know, Bel Air Press from the parking lot. It's beautiful. But... Um, so there's some things you just can't go against, you know, and we have to be resolved in that, and we are, and we've taken, like I said, a lot of heat from evangelical world because it's like we diminish the role of women, but no, not at all. It's just, it's just, it's just what is your placement within the body of Christ? What is your function? You know, what's your design? So great question, though. Yeah, Ben. Oh, he needs a microphone. He's a preacher, though, so he should be able to raise his voice. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. I have a, a question about um, bullying. I know bullying yeah. is kind of a, a hot-button issue in our society, and it actually has a lot of baggage. It seems like everyone's a bully and everyone's been bullied, and, um, and not all cases that are labeled bullying actually are. So I, I kind of like Hmm. I just wanted to ask your advice. How do you counsel parents of maybe children that aren't legitimately mistreated in school? How do you counsel them to have an attitude of forgiveness and grace, but also still having a protective nature about them? And how do they counsel their children um, in dealing with mistreatment from other Man, that's a timely question, too. You know, it's funny. I don't tell them what my dad told me. That's for sure. (laughs) My dad would sit there and say, here's the deal. You pick the biggest guy, and you hit him as hard as you can. (laughs) And I'm going, okay, then what? You know? It's like, then you run. (laughs) I'm going, okay, I got it, you know. How'd it go? Not so good. Not so good. You didn't hit him? No, I forgot to run. That was the... That was the <laughs> so, um, you know, it's a really serious thing. And obviously, it's much worse, I think, than when I was a kid because for some reason, that was just the norm. Of course, when I was a kid, you also had your teacher with a, a paddle that he had drilled holes in to get more air supply. And you would bend over in front of the whole class and like, ah, you know, and, and, he's, and everybody just, you know, you went back in your seat and no one was sitting there going, wow, weakling or anything like that. You just got paddled. And so it's a different, different world today people are so cruel because of the internet and they're so unmerciful and they are, um, younger kids are exposed now to more um, menacing kind of language because again, we didn't have exposure to this kind of stuff. If you went to school, you only knew what the other kids were saying and doing. But now uh, children have committed suicide based on bullying. And I mean, that's just, that's just all over the, the country. 
Um, in fact, suicide is a big discussion because of that. Kids are, are frightened. So what I have said before, and again, I, you know, every case is, as you know, as a counselor, just individual. It's case by case. But for the most part, uh, at least how we have counseled our sons, I think, is a good example. Of course, my, my first response to my son, if they'd ever been bullied, is to do what my father said. And I said, well, just whack them. Just hit them real hard, and they won't hit you again. You know? And, of course, then I repent, and Lori's going, what did you just say? And so uh, and I'm going, I was kidding. <laughs> oh, I would never tell him to really do that. And, um, but, you know, as a Christian, and Tommy will do this a lot. I remember from Tommy more than anybody else, so he'd sit there and go, but Dad, you know, what if you see somebody else bullying somebody? Because Tommy's already been big, so he, he was never bullied. But um, what would you do? And he goes, and I'd sit there and kind of in joking, sit there and go, well, just take them to task, and they won't do it again. Uh, Stan Patton's way of discipline. Um, by the way, real quick, and I know this is horrible because our time is fleeting, but did I tell you about my, my great uncle? You know, I was talking about church discipline earlier to uh, you. Um, so this is, this is a 1920. Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, Nazarene Church, uh, my great-uncle Wesley has a Methodist name. Guy committed adultery. Maybe I said this before. Guy committed adultery in the church. The deacons and my uh, great-uncle, Pastor Wesley, went to the guy's house, called him out, beat him up, (laughs) told him never to do it again, and he was on the first row at church next Sunday. You know, the guy's going to church, <laughs> you know, you ever commit adultery again? No, no, no. That was the old days that then it got, you know, then we got formalized. And <laughs> so what I would say is I would just talk to my kids, first of all, empathize with them. Why are they being bullied? What was said? If it's just some kind of um, mean-spirited uh, person who's on a dare and is trying to make them weak or stealing their lunch money or their food and all that, you know, I'd sit there and say, ironically, what I kind of said earlier, which is I'd say, you got to get away from it. You got to move away from it. Don't, don't try to get involved. Try to re- remove yourself. Um, how about if you want to share the gospel with them? That's not the time to share the gospel with them, to sit there and, you know, uh, try to speak truth to them as they're, um, you know, threatening to um, hang you up on a fence, you know. I think, I think, and you could correct me, but I think the best thing to do is just to sit there and say, you know, in your behavior, try to be as patient and loving and kind to people as you can, but don't allow yourself to be abused. When people speak of the Lord talking about, you know, if you're struck, turn your head and uh, turn your face and let yourself be struck again uh, from the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, if you guys know what I'm saying, Jesus is not talking about in that section about letting someone personally insult you and 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 hurt you, uh, because even in the explanation uh, that he speaks of, the the in in the Greek the idea of being struck has to do with from from the side, like being struck from this way instead of a regular punch. It's like it's an insult. It's it's a it's a it's an assault against your dignity and your character. It's not just somebody punching you. And um, so I'd say if someone is trying to personally insult you, first of all, I would say that you get away. Uh, you try to not be um, uh, subject to that. If they follow you and, and cause problems with you, I'd say you have to resist. There's no glory in being beaten to a pulp as if you're, I mean, that's not martyrism in the truest sense of the word. So I'd say you avoid it. You fight back if you have to fight back. You protect yourself, you know. You go to the principal, you go to the police. You don't, you're not concerned about being a rat. Um, I mean, that's I, I was never, I was never beat up on. Uh, but I mean, I did one fight in third grade. I called a kid out on third base, and he was safe. And I called him out, and he he attacked me with both of his hands and my eyes, and and uh, I didn't know what was going on, and I just knew that I had made a bad call, and uh, <laughs> and so his, you know, and then finally the bell rang for recess and he let go and we started to hug each other and I had no idea why we were hugging but I'm going I'm good with this I'm good with this and and um you know I looked like it was it was a glorious thing um I don't know if that helps but I just again to protect my kids I would just sit there and say don't let yourself be abused get get away from it if you if someone hits you and they're making a thing out of you defend yourself um 
I would say the same thing to anybody. There's, it's not like you're more like Jesus if you don't allow the per, if you allow the person to strike you because Jesus had a goal on the cross that he was allowing himself, First uh, Peter two to be defamed and to be spoken ill of and, and to be struck and threatened. But, but his was for a goal. It wasn't personal it was at all. He was, he was going toward the cross for the sins of his people. So I don't know if that helps. It looks like it wasn't satisfactory, but that's okay. <laughs> yes, Leo. And then you can go real quick. We're going to stay here for a little bit longer. In and out is open all day. <laughs> Oh. Well, we're out of time. <laughs> Kids say the darndest things. <laughs> um, well, before, before um, it became impossible for you not to be able to have relations with anybody that wasn't your relative, uh, it was not at that point considered sin. It was not considered sin for... Um, extended family. Now, we're talking within a 900-year span. So we're talking about Adam staying alive uh, for 900-plus years. So in the generation after generation after generation, uh, before Noah, which then started it up all over again, where you have the same thing happen, uh, it wasn't considered, at least God's Word doesn't call it incest. Um, It is incest to our generation because of the amount of sin that's um, added up and because of the... um, the lewdness of what culture has become. In fact, I'm going to talk about that next Sunday about the uh, what do you do when you try to stand up against the social order that is disintegrating before our very eyes? What happens when the foundation is split? Um, but it wasn't at that point. It's what the easiest thing I can say. I'm not saying that sin changes, but God's accommodation for what he considered to be against him and his command that had not been revealed. And as far as I understand that that wasn't sin. Otherwise, and again, there is sin. There's all kinds of, uh, there's, there's, you know what incest is, is when you have relations with your family, and uh, that is prohibited by God. Um, but at that time, if you were going to obey, multiply, and um, to go throughout the whole world and have population of human growth happen, it was impossible unless you were somehow, some way related. I remember one time, this never, never mind. Never, it's not good. No. Yeah, I'm not going to go there. Uh, you know, yeah, never mind. So, censorship is everything. One more question, real quick, and then we can go. Yeah. I was wondering if you could biblically differentiate, like, um, taking communion with mental illness and being compassionate, like, non-diabetes? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's the same. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, well, the thing about mental illness, and you know, the the expert on that is Dr. John Street, because not because of what you might think. Uh, <laughs> he he is famously taught that there is no such thing as mental illness; that um, the mind cannot become ill, the brain can become ill. So you're talking the difference between the 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 organ the brain that can become ill, operation, obviously people have had brain surgery, but having the mind be ill is really just another way to kind of cloak the truth of sin, uh, of ingrained sin. So when you see, let's say, let's keep that term though because that's how you said it. So if you see mental illness versus um, demon possession, it is interesting, isn't it, that you have Luke who's a doctor and he records uh, these very possessions, and yet he doesn't define it as a psychological disorder, or he doesn't speak of it in any way other than spiritual. So that's not to say that there wasn't a spiritual type of um, uh, infestation with many people that might have the might look like mental illness, but he didn't define it as such. So I'm not saying. And here's what I was trying to explain to my son the other day. Um, You can have a pattern of sin for so long and you can repeat the same sin over and over again until finally, by by repetition, that you have now created a pattern that has become part of your biology. It is your, your, 
your, your neurons have actually been so associated with this pattern that it's not just now a regular pattern that you can just break. Uh, smoking cigarettes, you can break that pattern even though it's very difficult for some people in heroin, etc. But this has become something that's become a part of who you are. And ongoing, uncensored, uh, unresisted sin can create in people a way of thinking and a way of acting that is so, uh, again, unrestrained that it takes on the form of what you might call mental illness or sometimes people call it a schizophrenia or bipolar. Uh, there's so many different labels depending on different symptoms and different symptoms are are very obviously different. So you have someone's bipolar, no, excuse me, you have somebody that's a mental a schizophrenic, a paranoid schizophrenic, they are very similar to someone who's also on LSD. And the only difference between LSD and schizophrenia is one took a drug and one is just responding to what's going on inside of them. So what happened is that one's drug-induced and one is something has happened inside that individual that's produced, ironically, the same symptoms. And so you have delusions of grandeur, you have uh, hallucinations, you have uh, voices talking to you, you believe in conspiracies, you believe in religious versus um, governmental, oh, those are not so bad, but uh, I'm just kidding, <laughs> uh, conspiracies where people are taken over. But in my mind, if you were going to uh, press me without meeting the person, I would say that most mental quote-unquote illnesses are actually spiritual issues that they're actually from a spiritual misapplication or ongoing allowance of sin in your life to where you don't even know who you are anymore. You don't even recognize yourself. You, you, and I'm talking about way beyond alcoholism or something like that. You have now departed from understanding even who you are as an individual. You could look yourself in the mirror and not know who you are. Um, but again, it's very hard to tell people that. It's very hard to sit there and say to someone, you're not mentally ill, you're, you're, you're spiritually in sin. They would actually rather consider themselves ill because then they can take a drug and then that drug can actually bring on a whole slew of other issues that, that Dr. Street will talk you, tell you about sometimes. Sometimes you have to get a person on a drug to get them off the drug because they were on a drug for a reason that was a sinfully induced reason and... Uh, so what's the moral of that story? Be cautious the way you speak to people about it, but also know in your mind it is a, it's a spiritual issue. Is that our cue uh, to go? Well, as long as you're still here, I'm not going to dismiss anybody. So uh, one more, if just because. Yes, over here, Tony Terranova, my sushi fan, friend. Hi, my name is Tony Terranova. Yes. Yes, I, I, I remember it well. It's a very difficult question for me. Okay. When are you going to have sushi again? <laughs> oh, as soon as you pay for it, Tony. <laughs> okay, on that very serious issue, good night. <laughs> have a pleasant uh, day. And I will be back here next week with uh, Psalm 11. Bye-bye. <laughs>